Let's pray. Our Father, God, we are in great need of you today for many reasons in many ways, and you know that. You knew that before we even approached you this morning. So we thank you for your constant presence, your loving kindness, the pleasure and delight you take in being our Father. We confess our failings, our stumbling, our sin, our wretchedness before you because we hope in the fact that you pardon and you forgive and you have mercy and you have grace. So illuminate our path now. Lord, each step, may it be lit up by your word, your truth, empowered by your spirit. May uh, the gospel witness of not just our mouths, but our lives become brighter and more evident as we make our way through your great sermon. We thank you for it, that you would preserve it, record it, and let us gain hope in it because of the power of your spirit. So I, I pray, Lord, that as we begin this, it, it will be weighty, and at times it will be hard. But I pray that conviction comes in the form of repentance and in the form of full confidence in you to enable us to follow. So we look to you. You're our only hope. And we thank you, Lord. I want to thank you for uh, the lives of these dear saints as we remember and celebrate that Brenda has finished the race, that she has been welcomed home, where your children belong. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you that you can comfort us with that truth. We thank you for a life that is still bearing witness to the gospel. And so those that come to hear and celebrate, Brenda, Lord, I hope they come to hear and see you through her life. Please comfort her family. Please comfort us as a church. We thank you for your nearness, your sweetness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount. You've heard of it, surely. Um, you've surely heard of the Beatitudes. Maybe you have a coffee cup that has the Beatitudes on it. And we're going to begin to look at what the Sermon of the Mount is. Last week I made a distinction in, in chapter 4, verse 25, versus chapter 5, verse 1. There is a difference between crowds and disciples. Jesus is healing everybody of everything, everywhere that he goes, in a very literal sense. That's what the kingdom does. It gets rid of imperfection and sin. And so wherever Jesus goes, the kingdom goes, the kingdom is. But there's a difference between following Jesus because you simply like what he can do for you and pressing in 
to know him more because you love him. So the disciples are the ones that follow Jesus up on the mountain. And he sits down, which is the posture of a teacher, especially in ancient Judaism, to sit down, to gather an audience, and to teach that way. And so disciple simply means learner. It's those that are desiring to know more about him, know more about this kingdom that he's bringing with him, uh, to know more about the law, which he is the preeminent teacher. And in fact, he comes to communicate to them that the law and the prophets all point to him. They're all fulfilled in him. He is the great I am. He is the author of this. He's the finisher of this. He is the personification of everything he's teaching here. So you first have to understand that as they're listening to Jesus teach, they're also going to watch him teach as he lives, which is the necessity of all his people uh, to do, is to watch him live. That's why I always recommend to people, even though the whole book is about him, uh, from Genesis to the maps, it's all about Jesus. I always recommend at least reading through one gospel every week or every month so that you are constantly familiar with how it looks to be a kingdom citizen here in this world. And this Sermon on the Mount is, a, is the great starting point for those that are his disciples. So we kind of give an overview here because we want to start with the whole before you get into the parts. You, you have to, if you want to bring that into Bible reading, understand the big picture of the Bible, the, the salvation thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation. Understand what this book is about in its whole and then dig in with that foundation so that you know what all this leads to, points to, is about, is, is bringing you to understand. And you can begin to get into those parts with that in mind so that you don't get off track, but you stay on the same track that the Bible is on. This sermon is, and, and in fact, these first um, three Beatitudes that we're going to get into today are foundational to the rest of chapter 5, 6, and 7. If you don't start here with, with the, the blessed or the happiness and the poor in spirit and Blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. If you don't start there, and we'll unpack those, then you won't understand the rest of the sermon. And also understand this. Every Christian is meant to be this. So that the overwhelming feeling that you're going to get, that I'm going to get, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, is, is right to feel. This is unnatural for us to be. But like I said, it's, it's Jesus personifying this. So if we look to him, if we trust in him, if it is him working within us by his spirit, then we are supposed to live like this, look like this. Uh, a great Welsh preacher during the World War II era and beyond, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, says there's not two classes of Christians those that are pretty holy people and those that are just somewhat holy or somewhat get it. 
but they can never attain this great holiness. That's not how this is supposed to work. No, your leaders are called to be above reproach. They are called to be examples. Paul's an example that calls people to imitate him as he follows Christ. But notice what he says when he tells people that. He says, imitate me. Do the things that I do. Believe the things that I believe and live your life according to that. So I want us all to kind of get on this train together. We're all looking to be characterized by this, but we're looking to be characterized by this as Christ works in us. These, these things that Jesus is teaching them are going to turn the world upside down because it's not natural to us. In fact, th- these things are contrary to what the world tells us to be. And we're going to see that. This, this is severely countercultural. This characterizing these things in our life is, is what sets us apart from the world. We don't have to wear different clothes. We don't have to uh, put ourselves in some commune to be different from the world. You live the Sermon on the Mount, you will be different from the world. I guarantee you. They'll see something in you that doesn't make sense in a natural way. They will have questions for the hope that's in with the, within you. Peter says, and you better be ready to give an answer. And the answer, I'll go ahead and give it to you, is not that, yeah, you know, over a certain amount of years, I've gotten really good at being poor in spirit. I've really, I've really uh, latched on to this meek thing. I'm really good at it. No. The answer is, yeah, Jesus is amazing. Jesus is constantly with me. Jesus is it's constantly working things out in me and convicting me of things and changing me. Jesus is the reason why you see what you see. If it were up to me, we can take the opposite of each of these beatitudes and put them on ourselves. So, also take note of this. Jesus died not only to redeem us, to pay the penalty for our sin in his blood, but he died to purify a people. He died to, to make kingdom citizens. Titus 2.14, this is about Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we've kind of had that discussion this week in our, our men's Bible study and, and different places that that. We're saved unto good works. You, you look at Ephesians 2, and, and you know, apart from God, there's no hope, and it talks about the fact that we have been created for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. But he purifies us first, not only to be filled with the Spirit, to have a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, but he purifies us to be zealous to do those things. How do you, how do you answer to people the fact that your life went from having desires of one nature to desires of another. The only explanation, take the Apostle Paul for example, the only explanation is that Jesus confronted us and changed us. That's how my desires changed. I saw him. 
I saw him for what he was. And in seeing him for who he is, you're, you're supposed to see yourself for what you are, which is the part that nobody wants to do. So we also learned in the letter to the Thessalonians, the letters, that it's God's will that we be sanctified or made holy. Not this, that we be nicer or more giving or more forgiving. No, that we be made holy. Not in a prideful way, but as we'll see, in a meek way, because we understand who we are before God. The Sermon on the Mount is also the full actualization of the law. Jesus is going to explain this in, in, in just a little bit. Uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And right there, our heart is supposed to sink. It's supposed to. And when your heart sinks after you hear that, that there's a holiness that's required to enter the kingdom of heaven beyond what you've ever seen here on earth, then you begin to understand what it means to be poor in spirit. You begin to understand who you are. How unworthy you are. And so that brings us to that first beatitude. Verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow. So we just fast forwarded, 17 through 20 tells us that, look, unless you're Unless your holiness, unless your righteousness is far beyond what this world has ever seen, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, what he's saying there is unless it's perfect, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. But he tells us here, before that, in verse 3, that unless you're poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is not yours. So what's that mean? Well, it's not in the sense that you are destitute of financial gain. or That's, that's, doesn't, that's not good. That's not a good trait something that happens, it's a reality of life, but it's, it's not what we're talking about here. It's poor in spirit. It's different than self-confidence. It's different than assuredness. It's different, certainly, than pride. It's awareness of depravity. It's awareness of sin. It's an awareness of need. It's an awareness that we don't belong in the kingdom save the grace of God. These first three Beatitudes are, are going to build on each other. That's why I'm doing the first three and not taking them individually. Because we need to see that they all go hand in hand. James Montgomery Boyce said, To be poor in spirit is to be poor in the inward man, not in outward circumstances. Consequently, to be poor in spirit is to recognize one's poverty spiritually before God. The law that Jesus is fulfilling is good. 
but it's not good in the sense that that we're going to be able to use it to get to God. We're going to be use it to be declared righteous. The law came in to increase sin, Romans tells us, Paul tells us. And that means that the law serves as a mirror to our own depravity before God. It serves to show, okay, here is, here is what holiness looks like. Is that you? No. Now what? Acknowledge that before God. What does John the Baptist and Jesus begin to say when they begin and continue their ministries? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Before salvation or while salvation, when it comes to somebody, that element is preeminent alongside the holiness and glory of God. And this, this isn't what they used to call fire and brimstone preaching. This is just the reality of the human condition and the need for the gospel, or why the gospel is literally good news. That despite all that, that nastiness, that wretchedness, that filth we are, God's grace and mercy is greater than that. So, he makes us kingdom citizens when we acknowledge or are able to see our spiritual poverty before him. We have nothing good in us. Isaiah tells us that even our good works are like filthy rags. We like to call people good, say people do good things, but there is no good apart from God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the way to become poor in spirit is to look at God. Right? This is, <clears throat> this is foundational to everything in the Christian faith. Seeing God for who he is puts everything in perspective. It puts us, it puts others, it puts this world, it puts everything in perspective. And we, knowing who God is, knowing what God has done, knowing what God expects can encounter the world in light of what or who God is, what he looks like. So the, the way to gain this attribute is just to look at him. And I say that all the time. Just to see people that really encounter God are poor in spirit. That's going to be the natural um, response to him. And we'll go over some of those biblical responses in just a second. Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This comes after an explanation on anxiety and why we're not supposed to fear, why we're not supposed to worry even about our daily needs because God takes pleasure in his people and he desires to give them the kingdom. Our response to him is, I don't deserve it. That's poor in spirit. The, the, the response of Isaiah, Peter, the woman at the well, Paul, it's all the same. This, this is what amazes me about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that when we look at God, when we see him, when we can truly see him for who he is and his glory, everybody's responses are the same. 
Go back to Job. Then look to Isaiah. Woe is me. Look to Peter when he sees Jesus on the water. Woe is me. I am undone. Look at the woman on the well who goes and tells people in her village, come and see and hear the one who told me. Everything that I've ever done. Paul. Paul knows that Jesus knows how he uh, viciously and murderously persecuted him. And their response at seeing the glory of God is all the same. They're, they're, they're broken. Literally, they're poor in spirit. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want you to look at this maybe in a new way that you never have. It's not new to the truth, but maybe you've never looked at it in this way. Mourning, our mourning, is, is being grieved by what sin causes. Loss. Because we are in the world that we're in and because we are who we are, things happen to our bodies, things happen to our finances, things happen to our friendships or relationships, and, and it's all loss at times. If you're poor in spirit, broken before God because of your sin, you will mourn over that sin. Or you will mourn over what that sin causes, either yours or someone else's. So look at it that way and then understand that we have death in this life, in this world, because of the fallen nature of this world. Because Adam and Eve sinned and welcomed in all of that depravity into our nature. And so our bodies decay and have trouble. We we don't have all the wisdom and knowledge that we should have, so we fail in certain ways in life. We, we have hatred and anger in our hearts, and so it causes us to break and lose relationships because of that sin. So those who are poor in the Spirit will mourn that. I mean, if, if, if you want to practice kind of hating your sin or mourning your sin. There are certain psalms that are called deprecatory psalms, which David is praying for judgment on his enemies. And it's like, well, we're supposed to pray for those who persecute us and bless our enemies. So what, how do we read those psalms or pray those psalms? Pray them in light of your sin. The, the Lord would destroy your sin. Kill it. Look at it as enemies. And look to the Lord to take them out one by one. So are you grieved by what sin causes? Everyone in this room that knew Brenda is grieved now. We hate that because we're mortal, because these bodies aren't going to hold up. That means we have to lose the presence of each other for a time. But, but what Pat and Beth and Sean have been communicating through this whole thing is, is this blessedness or this happiness in the midst of their mourning because they are utterly convinced that even though uh, this world, all these things happen here, Jesus has overcome that. So there is life despite death. There is hope despite our sadness. That's why 
First Corinthians calls us sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We hurt. We hate these things when they happen deeply, as we should. But we rejoice in the truth of what is to come and what is actualized when we are promoted from the earth. John MacArthur says, spiritual poverty leads to godly sorrow. The poor in spirit become those who mourn. 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We've looked at this before, right? This is the difference between Peter and Judas after the resurrection. <laughs> Judas is grieved that he would sell out the purity of Jesus, but he's, he's not grieved in a way that acknowledges his poorness in spirit and his need of Jesus. He's just grieved because he believes he did something wrong, which he did. And he's not looking for mercy and grace. He's looking to hide. He's looking to escape from that. Peter, on the other hand, he sticks around and he mourns his sin. And he waits on God. And he doesn't have to wait very long. Because Jesus comes after his resurrection and he tells Peter, he doesn't even, he doesn't even address what he did. It's, it's acknowledged. Peter's mourning it. Jesus knows everything. Feed my sheep. I don't get to do that. I abandoned you. I denied you. Yeah, feed my sheep. That's the mercy and forgiveness of God over somebody who mourns. It's a, it's a falling off of the path and grieving and waiting as Jesus brings us back on. James 4, 9 through 10, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before God and He will exalt you. So that's exactly what I just explained to you. Because it's truth. We are to be a broken people, but a hopeful people in the midst of that. Think about depression. It's different when, it, when somebody who, who has a godly grief goes through depression. I don't know what that's caused by. It could be caused by a number of things. But even in the midst of that darkness and that wretchedness and that mourning and that weeping, they're waiting. They're waiting for a rescue. They're hoping in the truth that God has proclaimed. They're acknowledging their poorness in spirit, like I can't rescue myself. This weight is too heavy. And they give their burdens to God. They cast anxieties on Him because He cares for them. And He rescues. He exalts. And the, and the great, right, the, the, the great comfort that is to come we're comforted now by these realities, these truths we believe. But look, we're all comforted by the hope of what is to come. Revelation 21, 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You understand that as Jesus not only redeems us, but redeems creation and, and makes it into the perfect dwelling place for God with His people, he cast out all of those things that were of the former existence of his people and of his creation. Death, disease, decay, depravity, 
all of that gone. And he begins to display that here on earth, right? As he's moving through and every disease gone, every uh, possession, demon possession gone, all these things gone. His people are supposed to celebrate because he's there with them. They're going to have plenty of time to mourn the fact that he's not physically in their presence and to hope for. But right now, while he's there physically with them on earth, they are celebrating. The kingdom is coming in. It's infiltrating this dark world. And we're looking forward to what Paul's looking forward to, what Peter's looking forward to, what Abraham looked forward to. We're looking forward to encountering face-to-face our Savior, the one who makes all this possible, the one who gives us all hope, the one who gives us all grace and mercy, despite the fact that we have no um, um, reason to, to gain that. We're looking forward to when he makes it all go away, right? When you're little, you want your parents to make the fear of the darkness go away or the tummy ache go away or whatever the case may be. Well, if you have a childlike faith, you're looking to a father who will actually and be able to do that in in a real way that ends all of those things that pain you forever. And the fact that you look at Revelation 21.4 and he's the one He's the one who's actually taking the initiative to make sure that you know everything's okay. Stop crying. What sin has caused both in you and outside of you is gone. Come celebrate. So that will show us that when we're confronted in in glory with the reality of what's surrounding us, we'll have regrets and we'll have pains and we'll just be out of our minds with sorrow over the things that we counted as more valuable than God while we were here, and and the list goes on, and God will say, it's okay. You're here, right? Like, look, look around. It's okay. And it will mean something, right? We, We try and comfort each other and our kids, and we try and say, hey, you know, it'll be all right. You know, the you know, morning will come, you know, you know nothing's going to get you in the night, but we can't actually promise that like God can. We hope for it, plan for it. We do everything in our power to make sure that we can help or comfort somebody, but we can't do what God can do. Who can utterly promise and fulfill every promise. So when I read Revelation 24, I can't comprehend that. I don't have any reference point for that. I've never been comforted like that, except in him. When I'm fully gazing in his direction at his person and fully believing on his promises, that's the only place that comfort has ever been derived from. All else is temporary. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. What are the meek? Well, they're the humble, the gentle, the mild. Meek is just, it's not another way to say meek by turning that W upside down. Meek is Jesus. You can call Jesus weak. The one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who, at the pronouncement of the fact that he was who the Roman soldiers were looking for, they all fall down. The one who the demons shudder and scream about when he approaches their vicinity. But what do we see in him? 
You see the humility. He became, right, a man. There is nobody who has humbled himself like Jesus. God wrapped in flesh in the first century. Like, uh, maybe come to a time where there's air conditioning and stuff. I don't know. But he came then, when the Romans had perfected crucifixion. When the only mode of transportation was walking or riding an animal. The meek are basically everyone who have met God. <laughs> Job is utterly undone at the end of all his sorrow and all the, all the chaos and all the just awfulness that came upon him, right? But he's utterly undone when he meets God. And God doesn't say why that happened to him. God just says, this is who I am. I measure the expanse in my hand. I tell the Leviathan what to do. And Job is just humbled, amazed. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we see there is nothing worth defending, and we, we look towards others. We're, we're not the the thing that people need to see. We're, we're not it. But it looks to everyone else's needs as more important than themselves. That's what Jesus did when he humbled himself. Right? He did that for you. It's, it's the opposite of what the natural man is told to be. When you read the the letters to the Corinthians, understand that Corinth was a place that valued strength and prosperity and high intellect and and, uh, just just all of the prideful things. They wanted to be the greatest. You're supposed to be great in every way, strong. You're you're supposed to be uh, merciless. Take what you want by force. That's what they valued. And then the gospel comes in and says everything opposite. And they're kind of like, well, I don't like that. Yeah, the natural man doesn't. But then you look at Jesus. And you see that meekness was this kind of strength under control. It was this boldness for the truth while not taking really account of self. Proclaiming for the good of others, seeking, but not taking. You will be meek if you're poor in spirit and if you're mourning your sin. It will humble you, and God will exalt you. There's your faith. It's not in me exalting myself. It's in God exalting me. So, this is, this is one of the things that I I look for in myself and in my brothers and sisters, if you're not humble, have you met God? Because you will be humbled. There is no two ways about it. And this is almost a a verse-by-verse translation by Jesus from Psalm 37, 11. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Why is it that these type of people will inherit the kingdom of heaven? Inherit the new creation. 
rule over it. Because those that are great in the kingdom seem like they're the least here. But sin has caused us to value things that God doesn't value. And to place ourselves in His position and to try and attain who He is, the power, the authority, the sovereignty. And so we begin to take on these characteristics of uh, being merciless and power-hungry and proud. But when we meet God, we know that there's no one greater than Him. He's got my salvation. He's got uh, my treasure in heaven. He is my treasure in heaven. He's got everything. I know who He is, therefore I know who I am. I know who you are, and I know what you and I both need. Without, we're hopeless. We can't save ourselves. That'll humble you. It's a refusal to assert oneself, but to assert others. Those who are poor in spirit and mourn will be meek, yet bold about the truth of the kingdom of heaven. We know who we are, and we're okay with that because God has forgiven us. We're not okay with that. That, that discounts those who mourn, right? But we know how he's taken care of that. So we're hopeful despite all these things that we are, we're hopeful. We're okay with being meek. We're okay with mourning and grieving our sin. We're okay with being broken over the fact that we are wretches. When you get to the end of Romans 7, what is Paul doing? <laughs> Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Who? I'll just leave you with that question. You look at the Sermon on the Mount and you say, wow, not me. And if it's not you, then the kingdom's not yours. Everybody here. But he wants to give those people the kingdom. So who's going to save you? And I'll tell you, Jesus will. If he has so moved on you to make clear his person, his glory, his goodness, and your weakness, to say it lightly, just acknowledge the truth, and he'll save you. I pray that you encounter him, respond to him, and then we'll stand and sing together.